Good morning, everyone. Let's thank Jeremy. We're so grateful for having him and Emily and our youth team. Keep praying for our young people. It's exciting to see what God's doing. Many of you know uh, Tammy and I have been part of the church family here for 10 years now. And most of you know that we have a son, Jordan, who's now 31 years old. And um, many of you have walked with us through some difficult times. Uh, Jordan would not be a, um, ashamed or embarrassed for me to tell a little bit of his story. As a young teenager, he really lost his way and um, was struggling with some depression and started self-medicating and, and experimenting with drugs. And Jordan became addicted to heroin. And um, we went through many, many years of very, very very difficult times of tears and pain and sorrows and prayers. And there was a time that we had to ask him to leave our house for a while, for several years. And um, so it was a, a dark and difficult time, but God was very, very faithful. And he constantly answered prayer and he gave us promises to cling to. And so many of you stood with us and prayed with us and loved us. And probably about four or five years ago, Jordan... Um, went away to a rehab called the Transformation Life Center, which is in Poughkeepsie, New York. And he spent uh, six months there. And that's where actually I met Austin. Austin had graduated from there earlier, Pastor Austin, and he came back and was preaching there. And I insisted that he no longer preach there, but that he come here. And so um, that was a blessing. But anyway, and then one of our other elders went there as well. But Jordan graduated from there. And it was during that time that the Lord really got hold of Jordan's life and he began to be transformed. And so over the years, he's grown and gone back and gotten a degree in special ed. He teaches special education in um, uh, Ben Salem School District and has walked with the Lord for these years. And he met a fine young lady. And if we could put a picture up here, uh, Friday, I think it's, it should be on there. Do you see it? Um, okay, it's coming. Please hold for the next available operator. But anyway, we have, we have a picture. Jordan got married on Friday, and so we are so thankful. In addition to him getting married, um, the girl that he married was one of my students. Many of you know that I teach Bible and theology at Cairn University, and I've been teaching there for 24 years. And after having Tara in class, she's just such a lovely, sweet girl who really loves the Lord. And so around the end of the semester, I um, spoke to her after class one day. I said, I'd really like you to pray about something. I'd love for you to... Oh, there they are. I said, I would love for you to meet my son. And I said, trust me, I don't do this all the time. This wasn't like the 80th girl. I said, you really got to... <laughs> I'm not like a desperate stalker, but um, I said, I think you guys would connect. And she's just a fine young lady with character. And I said, I don't want you to answer that right now. I said, I want you to pray about it and just get back to me after a couple days. So she prayed about it and she came back and she said, yeah, I think I'd like to meet him. But I found out later that her pastor was a young man that graduated from Karen that I had discipled. And years before that, he asked her, would you pray for one of my professor's sons named Jordan? who had kind of lost his way. And so she had been praying for Jordan. And the very morning that um, I asked her if she would like to meet Jordan, she had been praying for him. And she said she felt like the Lord was impressing on her heart that you're going to meet him. 
And so that very day was the day that I asked her if she would like to meet him. So, but being a, a, a prudent young lady, because I said to her, you know, don't answer it right away, she didn't say anything. She said my jaw dropped, she told me later, but she said I prayed on it. And so they met and um, just left this morning for um, Lake Louise and Banff in Canada for their honeymoon. And so we're, we're thrilled. And one day Jordan is going to come and my wife and I would like to tell a story. And I share this because I want to give Jesus all the praise and all the honor, all the glory. And I want it to be an encouragement to many of you who have a wayward child, a wayward relative, and, and it just feels like it's never going to change and there's no hope. And um, God has been so gracious and so faithful, and it's never too late. Just keep praying. Isaiah 64 says, you who remind the Lord, give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem. So many of you joined with us in praying and praying. And so for those of you that are in a difficult situation going, I don't see how we can ever get out of that. May the grace of God in Jordan and Tara's life just be an example of how the Lord can take beauty out of ashes and he can, there's no Humpty Dumpties with the Lord that he can't put back together again. So be in prayer for them. We're excited. They both really want to serve the Lord together and we're looking forward to what God has for them. So this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Amos chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one. Our ushers will come forward. There's a movement going on in Bucks County. We are having more and more people who are coming and who are taking Bibles and starting to read the Bible. It's rather unfortunate, but there are many, many churches nowadays who don't teach from the Bible. People don't have a Bible, they don't read from the Bible, and what we want to encourage you to do is to learn that you can read the Bible for yourself because God hasn't constructed the Bible in such a way that it's a Ouija board for all of us who seek the Lord and open our hearts to Him. The Lord has a message for each one of us, and it's a, a great story of Jesus Christ and His love and His desire to save us. But each individual book is a contributor to the large story of God's plan on earth. And we're studying the book of Amos. And Amos, we said, was a prophet who lived way back in about 8, or I'm sorry, 750 B.C. He didn't grow up a prophet. He didn't go to prophet school. He didn't consider getting a degree in prophecy. He was a shepherd, and he uh, worked figs and sycamore trees. But one day, God appeared to him, and he said, listen, I want you to go up to northern Israel, and I want you to preach to them in their capital, and I want you to denounce their sins, and I want you to call them to repentance, and I want you to tell them that judgment is coming. And the reason for that is God looked down upon the nation of Israel. It was full of wickedness. It was absolutely full of wickedness. In fact, I would probably illustrate it like this. Before the Civil War, as slavery was taking place here in America, there was a tremendous sense of oppression and exploitation. But as you know, the reason that people exploit others is because our hearts are evil and they exploit people to make money. And so what was going on in Samaria is that the wealthy people were exploiting the poor people, and as a result of that, they were making enormous amounts of money. And then when the poor people would try to get justice and go to court, it wasn't going to happen because the rich people were paying off and bribing the judges. So there was tremendous fear and violence among the poor. Many people were being put to death oppressed. Meanwhile, the rich people just kept getting richer and building bigger houses and were living these luxurious party lives. And 
While we might say, oh, did people do that? that? That isn't too far from what takes place in America. There are some really, really rich people and some really, really poor people. And it's not a simple solution, but some of it has to do with oppression and greed and, and the lack of a compassion and a sense of justice. Now, the Bible says this, righteousness exalts a nation. In other words, when people in a nation do what's right, God's pleased with that. He blesses it. But then it says, sin is a disgrace to any people. And there are no nations that are exempt from God's judgment. If you've ever heard of the book, The Rise and Fall of the Babylonian Empire, or of Babylon, or of Rome, rather, Roman Empire, everyone thought Rome was like the world power that would dominate forever. But they became so wealthy, so greedy, so wretched, and so preoccupied with games and pleasure and drunkenness and wealth that God caused them to fall. And there's no reason why we ought to assume that America could never have that happen. But the Israelites were God's chosen people. And we saw in Amos 1 and 2 that he, God denounced all the nations around Israel. But last week, he began to denounce Israel itself. And that's where we left off in Amos 3. He goes, look, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just a prophet. The lion has roared. God has spoken. I've got to tell you what he said. So beginning in chapter 3, verse 9, God's going to begin to denounce the sins of the people. Now, again, this would be like somebody showing up on the steps of the Capitol building and beginning to say, God is really angry at America, and Mexico and Canada are going to come in here, and they're going to destroy us. And you'd sort of be like, yeah, fat chance of that. So let, let's look at what happened here. This is one of the confirmations of the Bible, because what Amos predicted in around 745 took place in 722 BC. So 30 years after he prophesied these things, history tells us that this is what happened. So the first thing he does is in verses 9 and 10, he invites the surrounding pagan nations to come and take a bird's eye view of what's going on in America. So using the same analogy, it would be like saying, oh, leaders of Mexico, oh, leaders of Canada, come up here in a blimp and let's look down and see what's happening in America. Look with me in verse 9. Amos says, Proclaim on the citadels, these would be the fortresses in Ashdod, which was in the Philistines, the Philistia, and on the citadels in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria. So it's like saying to the Egyptians, Come here a minute, come up on these mountains and look down into this city and see what's going on these walled cities. He says, look at the great tumult within her and the oppressions in her midst. Now, the word tumult there is a word for panic. There's great panic and great oppression. Now, not on the part of the rich and wealthy because they're doing great. It's among the poor because the poor are being exploited, the poor are being oppressed, the poor are being violated. And so God says about them, they don't know how to do what's right. And one of the things I hope you've learned in raising teenagers is never ask them when they do something wrong, why did you do that? Because I can tell you what they're going to say. I don't know. <laughs> but it's an interesting question to ask ourselves, do we even know how to do what's right? How indeed do we learn to do what's right? 
The Bible speaks of times in Israel's history when every man did what's right in his own eyes. The standard for right and wrong is not my personal outlook where I go, well, that might be wrong for you or right for you or right for me. It's God's word, God's laws, God's holy demands, God's commandments. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. These are God's standards of right and wrong. God didn't stutter when he gave his commandments. And one of the things that he emphasizes, part of doing right involves not only loving God, but loving other people. And so when you mistreat people, you ain't doing what's right. And it's fascinating. I I just heard this week of someone who said, oh, yeah, they come to church and sing and pray, but when they go home, they drop the F-bomb at their family. So the way that we learn to do right is, first of all, God has to change our heart. You'll never learn how to do right just by doing it yourself. You'll never have your little Acme Coyote do-it-yourself do-right kit. God has to change our heart. And that's what's cool about being a Christian. He not only will forgive you of your sins, he'll give you the desire and the power to do what's right. And so what God's saying here is, my people are unconverted. They don't even know how to do what's right. In fact, verse 10 says, they hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Now, that's a metaphor because what he's really saying here is they're storing up stuff. They're stockpiling stuff. Enough is never enough. I want to get another house. I want to get another chariot. I want to get another vacation. I want to get another toy. I want to get some more clothes. But the way that they were getting it was through violence and oppression. So he's basically saying, while you think you're storing up stuff, you're really storing up violence and oppression and I'm going to stand by no longer. Look at verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Now let's just, let's just throw out a scenario. What if, what if Donald Trump is elected and he builds a wall and God said, Mexico's gonna tear that wall down and they're gonna come in and they're going to destroy America, and they're going to take over America. And it's going to be so devastating. Back then, shepherds, a true shepherd would fight to the death to to save a sheep. And so literally, there were times, Jesus said, a hireling will just flee, but a true shepherd would risk his life. If, if, If a lion had a sheep in his mouth, he would go and literally grab the sheep and get in a tug of war. And we've seen that recently with a person with, remember the little boy with the alligator? And God describes the devastation to come on his people. He says in verse 12, just as a shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and with the cover of a couch. You say, well, why does he mention furniture here, the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch? Well, part of the reason is because poor people had no furniture. I mean, zero. And these rich, opulent people had these beautiful ivory beds with pillows all over them, and they're just living in luxury. You know, it's funny. I met a young man, and I'm going to tell you later what happened to him, but when I went to his apartment, he was an illegal immigrant, 
but he was working here in the States. I went to his apartment and I went inside. There was nothing. There was no furniture. There was no cooking utensils. There was one bed and two guys living there. And they both worked 12-hour shifts seven days a week. So they just took turns sleeping, working, sleeping, working. And they had absolutely nothing. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Right? We, we, what are we going to do about that? And so we went and, and, and got them what we could. But it's hard to imagine that there were people like this. Meanwhile, these wealthy people were living in these luxurious, well-decorated homes. Verse 13, God says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day that I will punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. Now let me illustrate it like this. It would be like God saying, and I'm also going to rip your church down. Like, God, you're not going to go after a house of worship, right? And what he's saying here when he says, I will punish the altars of Bethel, is that when you read the Old Testament, God told them, that they were to build a temple in Jerusalem exactly how he told them. And they were to worship him exactly his way. It wasn't Burger King. They weren't taking bids on who could have it their way. God's way in the Bible is a narrow way. Jesus said, no one comes to God but through me. And so the Israelites in the north decided, we'll build our own religion. We'll build our own churches. We'll have a church where you can believe what you want. We have our own priests, our own altars, our own tabernacles. And we'll borrow a lot of what the Jews do, but we'll do it our way. And there are so many people in America that, that buy into that. They're like, you know what, as long as you're religious, it doesn't matter. They're all trains going to the same place. That's nonsense. The woman at the well in Samaria said to Jesus, our fathers worshipped at this mountain. You say that mountain. Who's right? Jesus didn't say, they're all right. He said, you don't know what you're doing. The Jews are following God's way. Now, that doesn't mean most of the Jews were saved. So God says, I'm going to tear down your religious structures in Samaria. And then, by the way, he says, you know your beautiful winter and summer homes? I'm not just going to go after my religious houses. I'm going to tear down your houses. Look at verse 15. I will smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. You're like, what does he mean by winter house and summer house? Do people do that? Do people have more than one house? Why would you have more than one house? I thought you would only need one house. People still do that? John Piper gives a very blasting sermon in his book, Brothers were not professional, arguing for, why would you need two houses? Now, of course, this verse is not saying it's a sin to have two houses. But what we're going to find is that these people who were stockpiling all their beautiful stuff were doing it to the neglect of God and others. And God says, go ahead, go to Home Depot, keep adding additions, but I'm going to rip it to the ground. You're like, well, Amos... You're not being very nice. You ready for this? Amos isn't pulling any punches. In Samaria, there was an area called Bashan that was very, very fertile. There was great pasture land, really rich soil and grass. 
So cows that were raised in Bashan were very, very fat and healthy, and that was the best meat. Cows of Bashan. So, so when you went to Sam's Club and you were getting your beef, you're like, is this, yeah, these are cows of Bashan. This is the top sirloin. Amos takes that illustration and he calls the women, the wealthy, oppressive women, cows. You're like, are you allowed to do that? He just did. Look at verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Men, do not try this. <laughs> Who are on the mountain of Samaria. Now, why is he saying that? Just because they were overweight? No. Look what he says about them. He says, number one, you oppress the poor and you crush the needy. So, you know, we proverbially joke about watching wealthy women who, who watch soap operas and eat bonbons all day and go to the spa. Amos is kind of cutting a little closer to the bone than we're like. We're like, Amos, whoa, dial it back a little bit. He says, you oppress the poor, you crush the needy. So many times, and this is just a fact, people who have a lot of money do not always get it the right way. So I want to challenge you to think about something. Is it wrong to want to get a lot of money? Is, is it wrong to really have a desire to get rich? I mean, after all, we're Americans. This is the land of opportunity. Well, the Bible says this about money. Money's not evil, but it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, by longing for money, wander away from the faith and plunge themselves into many harmful snares which bring men to ruin and destruction. So as Christians in America, we're sort of hearing a mixed message. We're told, you know, work hard, save up, you know, have plenty. But the problem with that is, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but if it's my desire to get rich, you can see why the Bible says if that's your desire, you're going to be setting yourself up for all kinds of temptations. Why? Number one, how do you get rich? Well, one way is to work your butt off. Well, is that a bad thing? Maybe. You're like, well, I have a great deal of respect for a man who works six days a week, 12 hours a day. And I go, well, if he doesn't go to church and he doesn't spend time with his family, and he doesn't take time for the Lord, I don't have a great deal of respect for that. In fact, I would say he has misplaced priorities because he has made wealth his God, and he has decided that it's more important that he pours himself into his job so that he can have plenty of stuff to the neglect of those other things in life that are important. And so on and on the list goes. To get money, you often have to be a little bit slippery in your morals and ethics. You know, when it comes to taxes and when it comes to, you know, oh, you know, these people, I can charge a little bit more. And so you can see all of the ways that the temptation to stockpile wealth can lead to dishonesty, lack of integrity, stepping on the little guy to get to the top, being deceitful, fighting over wills and money and so forth. And so, so Amos says, you wealthy women who are laying on your couches and just, just lazy and worried about nothing in terms of what's going on with the poor, he says, note this. 
he says, not only is he ups, God upset with them for they oppress the poor and crush the needy, he says, and you say to your husband, bring now that we may drink. I go, well, I do that all the time. I say, hey, honey, while you're up, can you bring me some tea, right? Do you, do you see what he's, what he's getting at here? He's not saying that it's wrong for a woman to ask for her husband to bring her something to drink. In fact, I was, I was angry. My brother said he, he went to dinner once at a family's house and, and the husband and the boys would, would tinkle their iced tea glasses. You know, they would just go like this when they were out and then mom would jump up and, um, and fill their tea. And I'm like, these men need to be smacked. But on the other hand, this is, this is deeper than just asking your husband to get you the, a drink. This is a prima donna diva whose, whose husbands are now, who are now just pandering to them. And, 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 and we see this in our culture where demanding women and, and weak men can lead to a reversal of the way God has designed the relationships. This verse is not teaching that wives are to wait on men. But I think, I think God is showing us here that, that sometimes there's a, a misplaced sense of the male leadership in the home and a misplaced preoccupation among the females with their wealth and their beauty and their spas and their pleasures. In fact, I want to encourage you, ladies, and this is nothing personal. I'm not, I don't have an agenda here, but as Christians... We want to make sure that we, we remind one another the whole counsel of God. The goal of being a Christian woman is not necessarily to be primarily focused on your appearance, though our culture, and guys, this is true too, but our culture is all about that. You need to be thin. You need to be hot. You need to be attractive. You know, God's not asking you to dress in burlap and, and, and not wear makeup, but, but listen to 1 Peter 2.9, Paul says, Likewise, I want Christian women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold pearls, and costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits a woman making a claim to godliness. Now, guys, don't ever say to a woman, do you work or do you just stay home with the kids? Because hands down, that's a lot of work. But ladies, there is a challenge here. If you are in a wealthy setting and you don't have to work outside the home, that you don't have misplaced values with what you do with your time and your resources. And so God is, is, is um, pretty stern here. Look what he says in verse two. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks and you will go straight out through the breaches in the walls. Each one will go straight before you, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. Now, obviously, that's a figure of speech. He's not saying somebody's going to get his bass rod and flip it out there and hook a woman and drag her in. But, but this is exactly what happened. When the Assyrians attacked Israel, they tore down the walls of the city, and they went in and they slaughtered men, women, boys, and girls, and they literally dragged dead bodies out of the city and they threw them into the rubble. And again, you have to go, what are these people thinking when they're hearing this? You know, who is this guy showing up here and 
denouncing us and, and calling us tyrants and, and wealthy and calling us cows and, and telling us that God's going to, going to judge and destroy us. Doesn't he know who we are? We're religious. Now, look how God mocks their religion. He goes, yeah, there's a big difference between religion and having a heart relationship with God. Look at verse 4. He says, yeah, yeah, I know you go to church. Look at verse 4. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply your transgression every morning. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering from that which is leavened. Proclaim freewill offerings. Make them known. For so you love to do so, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. You're like, what is God saying there? Is he telling them to be religious? No, quite the opposite. First of all, when he says, enter Bethel and Gilgal, he says, when you do that, you're sinning. And here's why. Because both Bethel and Gilgal were places where they built their own religious temple. God, God never told them to do that. And so isn't this what happens in Christianity in America? There's plenty of people under the guise of Christianity who take some of the broader things like, oh, you know, we have a little cross on the top and, and we say a few prayers to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but then we do all manner of other things. We ordain homosexuals. We pretty much allow people to do whatever they want. Just, just come and say, say your prayers, offer your confessions, do your rosaries. We, we allow wickedness to abound. Uh, one lady said to me, oh, I love going to the Unitarian Church. It's wonderful because we can believe whatever we want. And the sad thing in, in American culture is there are still a lot of people who are religious. They still go to church. And sometimes they go to churches like this. And they place their bottoms in a chair and they put some money in the plate and they think, wow, God must be really impressed. In fact, notice what he says in verse 5. He says, you give your offerings and you love to do so. It's always funny, you know, if we could be honest and somebody say, what, what are you doing here this morning? You're here because you want to be because you have to be. Now, the first place to start is with kids, right? Wouldn't that be fun? You're because you want to be because you have to be. You know, and please, parents... Don't do this with your kids. Do you want to stay in bed and eat Cocoa Krispies? Or do you want to go to church? I leave it up to them, right? Teach them as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to put God first, and they're not going to jump up and down and say, ooh, are we going to have prayer together, Mom and Dad? This is great. Could we do it more? So we begin to train people. But when it comes to religion, people don't all practice religion out of love for God. I don't always do it out of love for God. I'm ashamed of that. But think about that. There's two other reasons why people still are religious even when their heart's far from God. One is about appearance, right? What would people think if I stopped coming to church? Jesus said, beware. Don't practice your righteousness to be seen by men. Another reason people practice religion is that they think that somehow, as long as I do that, as long as I come to church or I have my devotion... I can do whatever I want. So yeah, I, I smoke a little weed during the week or you know, I, I, I'm not married but I have sex or, or I'm having an affair. But you know what? I pray a lot and, and I do my devotions and Bible study. And God's like, no, no, that's not how it works. 
In fact, imagine a husband who said, for the most part, I'm true to my covenant. I mean, I have an affair once in a while, but I mean, I really, I'm good to my wife. And so God's mockingly saying, look, you're still religious, but your hearts are so far from me. And so we'll finish up this chapter. There's a phrase that's used six times in which God's going to say to them, you did not return to me. So here's where, here's where Amos goes. He goes, let's do a little history lesson. Now, those of you who are raging, raising teenagers, you, you, some of you have hit that transition. It's a very different stage in life. When kids are little, you can, you can sort of have a pretty good control of their behavior for numerous reasons, like you're big, they're little, and there's not much they can do about it. But when they become your size and, and they're no longer at that place where where you can have that same level of restraint, you start going, well, you know, what do I do? My kid won't listen. You're like, well, I took away his cell phone. That didn't work, so I grounded him. That didn't work, so I took away the car. That didn't work, so I sent him to military school. That didn't work. Thought about killing him, but I knew that wouldn't work. And I just. <laughs> this is what God says. He goes, look, I want you to think about your relationship with me. You have wandered so far from me, and I have tried to discipline you to bring you back. But nothing has worked. I did this. You didn't return to me. 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 So at the end of this chapter, he goes, I have no further recourse. So here's what I'm going to do. And it ain't pretty. But it's a good reminder of a verse in Proverbs 29, verse 1. You might want to keep this in the back of your mind. It says, he that hardens his neck after many, many corrections will suddenly be broken without a remedy. God is incredibly patient. God is incredibly merciful. If you keep disobeying him, he's not up there with a lightning bolt going, um, just give me a reason, make my day. But there's this line in which if we consistently, just flagrantly keep saying, I don't care what you do to me, I'm not going to do it, right? There will come a time where God goes, that's it. And so the time to recognize that is before then. So let's look at how God tried to get them to return to him. Verse 6. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in your places. You're like, did he give them a dental plan? No, he gave them famine. He says, I gave you famine. So there were places where they didn't have enough food to eat. Now, when you don't have enough food to eat, you think that might get you praying a little more and get your heart right with God? He says, nope, you didn't return to me. So then he says, furthermore, I withheld rain from you, verse 7. There were still three months until harvest. I would send rain on one city, and on another city I wouldn't send rain. One part would be rained on, the, the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water. Wouldn't be satisfied yet. Here it is again. You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. You go, I'm picking up a pattern here. God says, well, then I tried smiting you with scorching wind and mildew. The caterpillar was devouring. Some of you are going, is that why the deer keep eating my tomatoes? Is God mad at me? Well, let's not read too much into it. But you can see how these people were living in dependence on God on their crops. And then locusts and caterpillars would come scorching winds, 
God would curse their fig trees and their olive trees. And he says, you still have not re returned to me. Then he says, I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. And so apparently there was a great sickness that, that afflicted Israel. Many people died. And then there were some small military skirmishes that killed people. <coughs> he says, I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. I made the stench of your camp rise in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. He says, in fact, like Sodom and Gomorrah, I overthrew you. And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you haven't returned to me. That almost sounds like a near-death experience. He's saying, you know, imagine when Lot and his, and his daughters got out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're like, wow, we should have died with them. And sometimes God actually gives people a near-death experience going, I'm telling you, I'm trying to get your attention. Will you please return to me? And I can picture God saying, what else can I do? to get your attention. What else can I do to get you to return to me? I've tried everything, and you will not follow me willingly, lovingly, submissively. So look what he says. This is, I'm like Amos. God, God, wow. Look at verse 12. Therefore, this is what I'll do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. Oh, Israel, that doesn't sound, doesn't sound like a good thing, right? Prepare. You're going to die. Hang down your head, John Dooley. Hang down your head and cry, because, boy, you're going to die. It's a very famous verse. Prepare to meet your God. And then God closes this verse, or this passage, I would have thought he would have said, because you know what, I'm so angry, my, my anger consumes the fires. But, but, he, but he tells us something about himself. He says, listen, behold, picture him talking, I who form the mountains and I create the wind. There's mountains all around. They could just look up and see the mountains. He goes, I'm the one that made them. And so they ought to go, wow, he's powerful. And I form the wind. In fact, this could be translated the breath. So maybe he's saying, I'm the one that puts breath in your mouth. The only reason you're still breathing and your heart's still beating is because I'm merciful. And then he says, I'm the one who declares to man what are his thoughts. See this book right here? I don't know how much you appreciate it, but I wouldn't give anything for this. You could offer me a billion dollars, but I'd never give anything for this. The Bible says the word of God is more valuable than much fine gold because without this we're lost we're on the highway to hell but with this book god has declared to us what are his thoughts he has invited us come to my son jesus be saved come and walk with him i am the god who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies is his name. Up in heaven, there are armies of angels, thousands and myriads of angels. You look at this and you go, wow, them people's in trouble. Well, what's that have to do with us today? I mean, surely God 
wouldn't feel that way about us, would he? People today don't do that bad stuff like they did back then, do they? And you go, well, maybe we ought to step back. So, let's start with this. There's two people that God's addressing here, the unconverted and the believers, okay? So let me start with this. If you are unconverted, if you are not yet saved, you need to prepare to meet your God because if you do not come to Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins that God offers, the Bible says that you will go to hell forever. And God doesn't want that. He's not willing for any to perish. The last thing God wants to do is to punish you and put you in hell. So he's provided a way to forgive you. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. And Jesus came down, and when he hung on that cross, God punished him instead of us. Jesus bore God's penalty for sin. He paid what I owed. He took hell in six hours one Friday, and he, and he absorbed it, and he said, it's finished. And he shed his blood. And God looks at the blood of Jesus, and he's satisfied that now sin can be paid for. And so the way that you prepare to meet your God is you don't go, let me tell the man upstairs what a good guy I am. You come humbly as a sinner, and you come and you say, Lord, the only way I'll ever set foot in heaven is because of Jesus. And I cast myself at the foot of the cross, and I believe on the Lord Jesus and his mercy. I believe that Jesus has accepted me, and he has forgiven me, and I repent from my, my sinful lifestyle of living away from him. I turn and I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. Now, if you haven't done that yet, I'm telling you right now, prepare to meet your God. And it won't be pretty. But you can change your destiny this morning if you'll come to Jesus. Right there in your seat, the best you know how. Just say, God, I, 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 there's a lot of things I still don't understand. But one thing's pretty clear. I ain't ready to meet you. But I just heard that you'll forgive me if I come to Christ, if I give my life to Christ in faith and I believe in him. So that, that's, that's what we're pleading for people to prepare to meet Christ. Jesus loves you. He's knocking at the door of your heart. And you're going, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, you can go through your list of reasons why you don't want to do that, but they're all bad reasons. Oh, I don't want to give up my fun. Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Oh, I'll do it later. Now is the time of salvation. Many people are in hell because they put it off. What will people think of me? Don't worry about what people will think of you. What will Jesus think of you? Because when you stand before Jesus and you meet your God, you're not going to say, hey, my friend. So whatever your reasons for not coming to Christ, come to him right today and, 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 and be saved. It's not that complex. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you can't think of a time that you've done that, just do it. Lord, I want to follow you. Forgive me. Change my heart. Some of you are struggling because you're like, I think I did that, and I don't know whether I feel saved. You don't have to feel it, and we want to disciple you and help you to grow in your confidence. So, but then many of you have already done that. You're a Christian, and here's great news. Once you come to Christ, you'll never go to purgatory. You will never have to fear that God is going to say, change my mind. Now you're going into hell. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are completely, once for all, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Please say amen to that. 
God loves us. We're his dearly beloved children. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We are his elect. He that began a good work in us will perform it till the day of Christ. But how we live our lives now matters. And there's no reason why I should assume, even as I read this passage, that when God says, you have not returned to me, that he's only talking to unbelievers. Christians in America will constantly struggle with losing our way and getting preoccupied with stupid stuff like materialism. When Jesus spoke to the, to the church at Revelation in, in Revelation in Laodicea, they were a wealthy church and they said, we're rich, we don't need anything. And Jesus said, you want my prescription? You're wretched, miserable, poor and blind and naked. And so I want you to repent. And so I, I, this verse shredded me, this passage shredded me. I'm like, God, I feel like I'm materialistic. I don't, I don't think enough about the poor. I don't think enough about giving. I sometimes am more worried about my vacation than about winning souls for Christ and spending time in prayer. And so one of the joyful things about a Christian is you can always return to the Lord. He'll never go, no, no. And you'll never get a note in the mail where God says, please make note of my address. It's changed. If you and I have wandered from the Lord, he's always steadfast, faithful. You come right back to him. And that's part of being a Christian. So this morning, Maybe for some or many of you, you're like, you know what? I'm not close to God. Oh, I go to church. I do the stuff, but my heart is far from him. I, I haven't been living for him. I haven't been in the word. There's a lot of areas where I'm not really doing what's right, but come on, who is? And God's saying, return to me. And maybe he's been tweaking you. Maybe he's been saying, but remember, I, I got your attention through this and through this and through this. Are you going to listen? And so, what a joy it is to know that God says, let the wicked forsake his way, return to the Lord. It's an ongoing journey to be in a surrendered heart. You're not alone. The songwriter said it this way, I'm prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. But here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. God's desire is that each one of us is, is close to Jesus. And if you're not close to Jesus and you're wandering from him, he's calling you back, but he's so welcoming. You're like, well, what will that look like? Well, again, it's not about becoming religious. It's about cultivating your relationship with him. If you don't have any time to pray, oh, I'm too busy to pray, then you're too busy. If, if there's things in your life you're like, well, but I love doing them. If they're wrong, they're wrong. Jesus died to forgive you, and he will give you strength. And so let's pray this morning that we won't be like these people where God goes, what do I have to do to get through to you? Because as scary as it sounds, God does kill Christians at times. You're like, what? Yeah, it happens. 1 John 5 says there's sin unto death. If you see a brother sinning unto death, it is possible for a Christian to be so stubborn. Now, you don't lose your salvation, but you can think of it this way. God wants to take you home and crown you. That's why you're here, because he wants to use you and me. He wants to let the Holy Spirit love others through us. But if you don't want him to take you home and crown you, sometimes he'll crown you and take you home. And we don't want that to happen. And it's not like you have to be afraid God's up there going, 
why I oughta. But let's learn from this. If God's speaking to you, listen and let's, let's learn to, to accept the loving Father's correction and not be caught up with what everybody else in America, even the Christians, what everybody else is doing. Let's seek the Lord. Let's, let's walk with the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Pray for me. Let's pray that our families, our kids, fathers, take spiritual leadership. If your marriage is in shambles, God can fix that, but it takes humility. It takes prayers. It takes repentance. But a church of people, young people, say, oh, you don't understand. Nowadays, it's too hard for young people. No, it's not. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's faithful, and he's given us his word And when we draw near to God, the Bible says when we humble ourselves, the Lord will lift us up. He'll exalt us. He will bless our church. So let's join our hearts together as we pray. Father in heaven, you are so gracious. Thank you so much that you first loved us. I want to be the first one in the confession line to say, God, this passage was really convicting. Being an American I love to think about my next barbecue, my next fishing trip, my next purchase. And Lord, there are times that I just do not seek you with a full heart. And I ask you to forgive me. I thank you so much, Lord, that you have left us here in this world to make a difference, to stand up for the poor, to give generously, to use our time to help other people who are hurting to be a caring Christian community, to try to heal racial tension, to try to help those who are in need. Father, thank you that you love us. Please may we be a church that you do not look down upon and say, I hate your religious songs because your heart's far from me. May we be worshipers and lovers of Jesus. Lord, may each person be prepared to meet God because we know that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and that he satisfied your wrath and now we can be saved by your grace through faith. Give us a joy and peace that comes from believing the gospel this week and help us go out this week not loving ourselves, but loving you and loving others. Bless your sheep. Bless those whose hearts are hurting, those who have lost loved ones, those who are struggling with kids or marriage, those who are financially in need. Comfort your people, O Lord. Revive our country, Lord. Please don't destroy America. We pray for the upcoming election that you will turn our nation back to the Lord and that churches in America would return to the word of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. You can read Amos 5 and 6 for next week.